Welcome to China Perspectives, a podcast on economic and credit developments in China, featuring experts from within and outside of Fitch Ratings. My name is Ying Wang, head of APAC Energy and Utilities and China Research Initiatives at Fitch Ratings. Today, I'm pleased to introduce my colleague Taryn Kam, Senior Director and Head of China Property at Fitch Ratings in Hong Kong. Taryn joined Fitch in 2018. He currently leads a team of four covering the greater China property sector. Prior to Fitch, Tyron was a portfolio manager and senior analyst with various buy-side and sell-side financial institutions. Tyron, thank you very much for taking the time to join the podcast. Our topic today is, can China's property market be revived? This may sound a bit bearish, but since a new round of policy easing was introduced from August, there seems to be little sign of recovery yet based on high-frequency data, either in the primary or secondary market. Could you please tell us what's happening? Thanks a lot, Ying. Actually, there's a sense of recovery compared to July and August. Um, this is after a very concentrated role of government policies. We did see market stabilizations. However, compared to historical context, for example, um, if you look at sales by the top 100 developers, October sales is still flat on month-on-month basis against September and still down 28% year-on-year. So we can say that it is a rather disappointing recovery. I believe this perceived lack of a meaningful recovery is driven by a combination of factors. Firstly, I think China property market is probably going through a structural normalization process. In the past, China housing market has benefited from factors such as very rapid economic growth, vast wealth accumulation, a lack of stable investment alternatives for the general public, and also very high household saving rates. This led to persistently high investment demand as well as poor forward real housing demand for residential housing. The period of rapid home price growth has persisted despite repeated government intervention that often led to very temporary and modest decline in home prices and a widespread belief of home price will only go up. However, the experience over the past two to three years has fundamentally changed this. We know that the immediate cause appear to be the government unprecedented crackdown in the sector since the second half of 2021 with the introduction of the free red lines. We also know that the persistent disruption caused by COVID over the period, as well as geopolitical pressure, as well as crackdown in other high-flying sectors, created negative economic pressure and has a knock-on impact on consumer confidence. However, we believe that beyond these immediate causes, what's fundamental to the changes is the underlying structural issues that is demographic. In 2022, China registered its first population decline. Birth rates dropped to a record low of estimated 1.09. As we have seen in many of our neighbors, when the nation's fertility rates dropped, it is very difficult to reverse. With that in mind, I believe the government's policy response in the past 24 months is very telling. In terms of supporting the property sectors, the government remained very targeted and very piecemeal, and there's no large-scale relaxation or stimulus. I think we now have a body of evidence to suggest that the government's priority is to facilitate the sector's normalization process. That is to allow the sectors to downsize to a more sustainable state. Its priority is to manage this downside process without triggering um, large disruptions such as large number of unfinished property projects or large volatility in home prices that could evolve into systematic risk. Seen from this angle, the government policies are largely successful. However, from many sectors' participants' point of view, 
the recovery is weaker than expected. Thanks, Taryn. You just touched on the North Asian neighboring countries' birth rate declines in parallel comparison. Many people compare China's property market bubble with Japan's in the 1990s, and they fear that China's property market will go through a multi-decade downward spiral, with deep price collapses even in Tier One cities. Based on what you just said, the Chinese government so far has managed to prevent that from happening. What's your take on this comparison of China's property market with Japan's?、Um, I think the terms Japanization are now sometimes used by economists and investors to describe China's current situation. But to be honest, the comparison to Japan's decade of very slow growth is actually quite prevalent. For example, if we search online, there were many, many articles over the past decades that compared Europe to Japan. Of course, now that Europe is facing a very persistent inflationary pressure. That kind of comparison has become less relevant. I mean, in the case of China, though,、uh, I believe there are some similarities, but also critically, a lot of differences. In terms of similarities, as we already mentioned, demographic is often cited as a key component. China's has seen a very large drop in fertility rates, and there are concerns on its aging population that is very common factors that is typically、um, pointed out、uh, in the case of Japan. I think another key point that a lot of market participants tends to look at is prior to the Japan's asset market bubble,、um, there were very fast increase in terms of the household debts in Japan. Household debt as a percentage of GDP rose to sixty-eight percent, and household debt to income rose to one hundred thirty percent in the late eighties. Chinese household debt also increased over the past decades, with household debt to GDP now at around sixty-three percent. And estimated household debt to income level at around 100%. However, our view is that despite these similarities, there are also a lot of differences between the two economies and the housing market. Some of the key differences are number one, urbanization rates.、Um, China urbanization rate is at 65%, and is very similar to the level achieved by Japan in 1960s. Even though overall population growth in China may stagnate. We do expect population migration continue to be a driver for property demand, especially towards the economically vibrant cities. Number two, per capita income. China per capita income levels is around U.S. dollars thirteen thousand, which is significantly below what Japan's achieved in the nineteen eighties peak at forty four thousand U.S. dollars.、Um, crucially, compared to Japan, which is way more reliant on exports, China has a large size. Developing domestic market that could drive future economic and income growth. Finally, I think the third point, which is the most important point, is government control. Compared to Japan in the 90s, the Chinese government can exert much higher level of administrative control over the economy and the housing market. For example, prior to the current property crisis, the government has imposed many forms of property restrictions to curb speculations, which are now seeing most. But not all of that being rolled back. The government also exerts control over the pricing of the land, the pricing of many primary property projects. They also set guidance prices for secondary transaction. Finally, most of the developers that have survived the current crisis are either state-owned or state-linked enterprises.、Um, beyond the property sectors, the government retains a very high level of control in the banking and financial sectors. This meant the government has much more levers to pull against the slowing market compared to Japan. Our base case scenarios actually incorporates the above assumptions. 
We believe that the housing market in the economic vibrant regions and cities will likely stabilize over the next 12 months, supported by healthier demand and supply dynamics and favorable internal population inflows. However, for a larger part of the market, especially in the lower tier cities, it may take longer time to adjust and digest local housing stocks. Some may even suffer from a longer term housing recessions. Right. But if the market fails to perform to your base case scenario, what do you think that might happen on the policy front? I think as we mentioned earlier, I believe the government remains very committed to facilitate a gradual transition away from property developments and property investment as a key driver for economic growth. On the flip side, this actually means that it might take a lot more downside news to prompt the government to go for a much larger size monetary stimulus that some market participants are still waiting for. Having said that, I believe there are evidence to suggest the government is very sensitive to home prices. I think government is very keen to contain property sector stress from transmitting to the broader economy uh, and affecting system-level financial stability. We therefore believe that the government is prepared to act more aggressively if Chinese home prices decline the salaries. Um, for example, if we see home prices in certain markets starting to drop in an uncontrolled manner, we may see more aggressive monetary policies from the government. I have taken a stock of the developers which had offshore bonds outstanding as of the end of 2020 before this crisis. And by now, nearly 80% of them have already defaulted. So what differentiates them with the remaining 20% survivors? And also, what's your view on the credit risk for the remaining survivors in 2024? The obvious difference between those survivings and those who have defaulted is actually widely known. Essentially, most of the SOEs survived and most of the POE developers defaulted. The reason is also obvious. SOEs are supported by very strong bank funding access, with some strong SOEs still able to access the capital market domestically, while most of the POEs not so much. Um, I suppose your question is really asking, within the POEs, what are the factors that separate the survivors from the defaulters? We actually conducted a study earlier and have published on this subject. In our study, we identified several factors that are important and help some private developers to manage the crisis better than the others. This include a few factors. Number one, essentially, um, strong conventional funding access. We find that developers that rely more on conventional funding channels, in particular those that demonstrated strong banking relationships and with bank lending accounting for a much higher percentage of their borrowing mix, tends to retain a more stable funding access throughout the crisis. Number two, uh, high quality of unencumbered assets is important. We find that the quality of assets used as underlying securities is important factor that heavily influence funding access uh, over the past 24 months. Banks are more willing to lend against projects located in premium areas of higher cities. That's naturally the case. We've also seen developers that have large pool of unencumbered investment properties, which helps to enhance their funding access either through direct secure bank lendings or government-supported debt issuance. Finally, the last point I want to make is about the prudential risk management and internal control, which is very important. In particular, we find that the use of grey funding channel or use of complex group structure, for example, some sort of opaque JV arrangements or other off-balance sheets vehicles are very negative. The existence of these kind of arrangements in a lot of cases suggest weak transparency and poor governance 
and it often sinks market confidence, leading to damage to reputations. Um, we've seen cases where developers' property sales and funding access evaporates immediately after the market find out about such arrangements, and many companies quickly run into liquidity issue as a result. The Chinese authorities have called upon banks to support property developers' reasonable financing needs. And we have seen many policies rolled out over the last 12 months or so, encouraging banks to lend to the private sector. So have you seen any improvement in private property developers' funding condition at all? And if that's not the case, what are the hurdles? No is the simple and short answer, but surely we can provide a bit more details. Looking back in the beginning of this year, we do see a degree of easing in funding conditions for some private developers, as government policies in supporting private developers' funding access appear to have some positive impact. Um, of course, the offshore debt capital market remained closed from all private developers throughout the year. However, we have seen some government-supported issuance onshore, and we have seen banks trying to adhere to government policies and support and extend credits to the sectors. However, given how fragile the market confidence is in the sector, especially with default still an ongoing issue, the sector's funding access, at least for the POEs, continue to be highly dependent on their sales performance, which ultimately determines near-term cash flow generations as well as debt servicing capacity. However, with sales dropping even for many SOEs from Q2 onwards, um, conditions has again worsened for most POEs lately. And recently, we've seen market also testing the confidence in some of the strongest state-linked developers, despite their very strong liquidity profile. My last question for you is related to defaulted property developer debt restructuring. The pace of that debt restructuring seems to be slowing down a bit in recent months. We've seen quite a few developers announcing to amend or delay their restructuring plans. So what is happening? And do you think it's possible that some restructurings may ultimately fail and turn into liquidation? Actually, there's still a lot of noise in the market and the restructuring situations for many companies appear to be very fluid. Um, take Evergrande, for example, which we have downgraded the company's rating to restricted default back in December 2021 and since withdrawn its ratings. The restructuring process is still ongoing and faced disruption in October as it failed to obtain the regulator's approval for the issuance of new dollar bonds, which is a key part of their original restructuring plan. Later news also confirmed that the chairman and founder was under investigation. The Hong Kong court has given the company a deadline of 4th of December for it to come up with a new restructuring plan and say that the next hearing will be the last before a decision to be made on liquidating the company. Um, the situation is very interesting. As the onshore investigation has disrupted the original restructuring proposal, essentially forcing the management to revise their plans. And some are questioning whether this is a way for the government to use this as a test case for the liquidation of a major developer and see how the banking system and the local government can manage this process. Our take is that this is an idiosyncratic situation. I don't think the government is really deliberately forcing a liquidation case here. The government has previously made very public announcement in supporting the extension and restructuring of bank loans, trust financings, bonds for property developers. And since then, we've already seen private developers actually completing the restructuring process as well, which include issuing of new bonds. So we really don't think the government is favoring a liquidation ahead of restructuring. 
However, with the latest move by the government, and liquidation becomes a more likely option under this kind of scenario, and the lack of visibility in the sector's sales recovery, I think the bondholders may reconsider their recovery prospect, and some of them may be more willing to accept the latest restructuring terms on the table. Thank you very much, Tyron, for your insight on the Chinese property sector, a highly topical and important one to China's economy. We shall wait and see whether the intensive policy support may yield some positive effect on home buyer sentiment and arrest the persistent decline of sales in the coming months and lead to a gradual market stabilization in 2024. You have been listening to Fitch Ratings China Perspectives podcast. To learn more about our ratings and research on China, visit us at FitchRatings.com. Please subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Take care until next time.